0: I had the uh, privilege again this week of uh, working on the last of the five solas of the faith, and the last of the five solas of the faith is sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. And as I'm sitting there pondering, all right, so what are we going to talk about when it's the idea that glory belongs to God and to Him and to Him alone, and you're wrestling with this, you go, so all right, what's the, really the at stake? Well, what does the glory go to? Does the glory go to God, or does the glory go to man? And so it wasn't too long until I decided to Google, and when I decided to Google, which even though I still have a hard time using Google as a verb, even though technically it's a noun, all right, but I decided to Google this phrase, and in there the Google was arrogant statements, all right, famous arrogant statements, because if you're giving glory to self, you're not giving glory to God, and obviously the first one popped up, one by Muhammad Ali, and then I realized there was a little bit more left to this, and Muhammad Ali says, I am the greatest. He goes on to say, I said that even before I knew I was. All right, we see, that, we see how the arrogance of him. And then it wasn't too long before there was a, uh, there's a movie out, and in, in this movie, Will Ferrell makes a statement where he says, I, didn't, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me, and I'm very important. Uh, we all think that way. Let's be honest; we do. And it wasn't. And I remember um, in the my years in college, there was a song by Kenny Rogers that I just used to laugh about. And this song by Kenny Rogers went like this: There was a little boy who takes his bat and his ball. And he decides to go out one day like little boys do when they throw their ball up into the air and they're going to hit it, all right? And so this little boy puts together a song in his mind and as he's walking out with his bat and ball, in his mind he's thinking about how he's the greatest there's ever been and there's no one as good as him. And he's going to go out and he's going to play this game of baseball in his mind. And so he goes out there, the, he grabs the ball and the first pitch goes up in the air and he's ready to just crank this ball into the field and, you know, hit a home run. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down and he swings and he misses. Undeterred, the chorus again goes, I am the greatest there's ever been. You know, there's no one as great as me. He grabs the ball again and this time he's going to really crush it. He throws it up in the air, he swings and he misses Undeterred, you know, he again reminds himself how he's the greatest there's ever been, and now we get to the third pitch, all right? We've had strike one, we've had strike two, and now this is the one he's just going to send into the distance. He throws the ball up, the ball goes up, the ball comes down, and he misses. And If you know the song, his response is, I'm still the greatest there's ever been. I just found out I'm a phenomenal pitcher, you know? And so it is... No matter how the situation is in front of him, his pride is so great that he just realizes, I just switch it to whatever's going to fit, singing in his mind, I'm the greatest there's ever been. And all of a sudden, we come to a passage of scripture. In Romans 11, here, where Paul, at the end of a great buildup of how great God is, in Romans 11, here, he's coming to a concluding thought. And so follow with me here as we read this in verse 33 to get a little context. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given to Him that He might be repaid? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. Verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. I threw too many ever's in there, but amen. There's two parts of this verse that I want to break apart in verse 36. We have the from him, and through him, and to him, and then we have to him be the glory forever. Amen. Part one, we're going to see a God-centered theology, and the God-centered theology we're going to see is that Paul is going to proclaim that from him, and through him, and to him are all things, and then The second part of this verse, we're going to see a God-centered doxology. So a theology, again, is the study of God. So we're going to see Paul's understanding of who God is. And then a doxology is a response, the praise that flows from that. It's the same thing that happens all the time in our lives, a cause... And we have the effect, no different than what's going to happen in, all, in multiple places of worship today called stadiums. There will be people there worshiping and all of a sudden a ball will be thrown into the air and the worshipers stand up ready to cheer on their idols. And as the idol, as the ball is caught, people stand in applause and they cheer because they saw something and what are they doing? They're giving us their doxology, their praise to what they saw. If you haven't figured it out, it's called The NFL. And so, as we're playing through these things, we know that. And so, point number one of the text is what is very clearly saying here, that God is the source of all things. So, when we think about why glory goes to God and to God alone, we're reminded what Paul says is, God is the source of all things. So, what we're going to see here is that high theology is going to drive us upward. Low theology drives you down to the world around you. High theology drives your heart and your mind upward. So let's break down this verse. There's a couple of very important phrases in here. From him and through him and to him, and I want to look at the last part, are all things. So that understanding of that word, all things, literally means all things, all right? There's not too many different ways of interpreting all things unless you believe in Anything other than all things means all things, which is everything. So that means nothing is outside of this statement. Paul is including everything in this statement. This is a statement that includes literally the universe and everything that ever existed. So we're seeing here that Paul is explaining there is no rogue molecule in this world. That is not part of what he is talking about. He's also telling us that it is the history of all things that ever have been and ever will be are included in this statement. When we realize that from him and through him and to him are all things, this is literally the basis of a Christian worldview. A Christian sees everything that it is from God. God is the one who is doing it and God is the one who is going to complete it. That is a Christian worldview. That's how the Christian is to view the world, that everything is from him and through him and to him. So now what I want to do is I want to walk through these phrases, each three of them, and I'm going to walk through them in three different ways. So when we look at verse 36 and you see the phrase, all things are from Him, what that means is the from is that it passed. So that means eternity past. Things that happened in the past are from God. When it says all things are through Him, that means within time things are happening. And then we see that all things are to Him, we see we're talking about eternity future. So here's another way of going through this. All things are from Him. That would mean He is the source of all things. Because if everything is from Him, He is the source of all things. If all things are through Him, that would mean that the means of accomplishing all things come from Him. And if all things are to Him, that means He is the completer of all of these things. Another way of putting it, I'm going to go down again just in case if you're not getting this because this is really key to Paul's argument. All things are from God, that means he is the architect of all things. All things are through him, that means anything that comes to pass, he is the administrator of all things that come to pass. And last but not least, if all things are to him, that means the goal of everything is pointing towards Christ. We are moving in that direction. So, to summarize verse 36, the beginning of this, because if we do not understand this, we will not get the last phrase, to Him be glory forever and ever. So, another way of putting it, God planned it, and God's plan is going to be accomplished in space and time, and God's plan will come to completion because God has planned it. And you're going to go, does anywhere else this say in Scripture? Well, I turn with, in your Bibles here to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul states, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. So just in case you're wondering, when it says all things were created, Paul goes on to say, just if you don't know what all means, all means in heaven and on earth, the things you can see, the things you can't see, and even goes into the thrones, dominions, and rulers, and authorities, and then in verse 17, just in case if you didn't get it, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is literally Paul telling us again what he said in Romans 11, that He is the one who has planned them. He is the one that will carry them out, and He is the one that will bring them to completion. So here's what I want to do for a moment. Because until we fully grasp this concept, we will be so quick to join the chorus of the people we talked about before, thinking about how great we really are. So in a way, I put here in my notes, I want you to take a moment and just pause And to reflect, there's so many things going on in this world, our plans and everything else, and I want you just to listen to the Word of God here. But here's what I wrote, just to remind ourselves of these things. Before time began, think about that for a moment. There's no earth for God to be looking upon. There's no angels that are singing Him praise. There's nothing but God and God alone. God is not bored. He is self-sufficient within Himself. He did not create because He goes, what do you guys want to do for the rest of eternity? And they said, well, let's do something. No. He was self-sufficient, in need of nothing. Not in need of anything to call Him glorious or anything else. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in complete harmony and in complete relationship in eternity past, decreed a singular decree of all future events this decree was a comprehensive plan that included everything that will come to pass the decree went out and it was so i'll give you an example how we see this how did god create he said it and it happened i mean that's power we don't even we can't grasp I mean, pause. I mean, I, I know as dads we like to say you know like something and we expect everybody to do it, but let's be honest. That's power that's on a totally different level. All right. That by the speaking of your words out of nothing comes something, and the great cry that goes out, "Let there be light," and what was there? There was light. adamant objects obeying him, and it didn't just stop in creation. This is what I want to spend some time doing. This is it's mind-boggling to think of this. Jeremiah 5:22. In Jeremiah 5.22, as we just look at the Almighty God and His decrees, in Jeremiah 5.22, I think I beat you there, but I'll give you a second. Jeremiah 5.22, I would encourage you to turn to these things so your eye can see and your ear can hear as you learn. Jeremiah 5.22, where the Lord asks a question, Do you not fear Me? declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? And here's why. I have placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. And we see here that even in adamant objects, what does God say? Here's where you're staying. No matter how much you roar, no matter how much you go, guess what you're going to do? You may try to rebel in a storm, but guess what all that water is going to do? It's going to go back to where it came from. And we see the world around us and we see God's control where He has said, this is where you will go and no further. Continuing on in this, let's go to Job 12.23. When we think about nations that rise and nations that come about, Job 12.23. In Job 12.23 here, what we see is speaking of God, He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and He leads them away. wonder what this verse should do to the believer come election day. God is doing what? His work. It should cause us to have peace because nations rise and nations are destroyed. Nations enlarge their boundaries and He leads them one way or the other. God is the one who is doing it. God is the one who is rising up one nation, putting down another. And not only just nations, not only just the ocean. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to see even animals. Matthew chapter 10, 29. God here is speaking, and here's what he says. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? All right, this is giving us a good indication of the value of sparrows. And we see a penny, a sparrow, you're going to go, these are animals that are here for a moment, they're gone. I would almost argue that most of you, if you were driving and you saw a dead sparrow, that would probably not ruin your life, depending on your opinion on sparrows. But most of you are not there. All right, we don't have a save the sparrow group, you know. Um even even in our world or sinful world, there are certain animals that no one really cares about saving, you know, like if all the mosquitoes would die, no one would be out there let's save the mosquitoes. It's just the cute cuddly ones that we care about. But notice what the text says, even animals that don't mean anything to the human race, none of them will fall to the ground apart from what? The Father. And it goes, and if that's how God views the animals, how much more what? You. So even we go even further. What about our plans? If everything is from him, if everything is to him and everything is through him, what about our plans? What do we do with all of this? How is this supposed to work out? Well, let's go to the wisest man in the Bible. Wisest man who had ever lived apart from Christ in Proverbs 1921 and see what. Solomon has to tell us about our own plans. Proverbs nineteen twenty one: Many are the plans in the mind of man. And I would go, yes, they are. We have a lot of plans. We have a lot of things we're thinking about. We have a lot of things. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. We have this plan or we have that plan. But what do we know? What does the phrase go on? Every proverb, I love this. They start off with something, then they give you the, but this. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Solomon is saying, you can plan all you want, but God's purpose will stand. James picks this up again in James chapter 4, 13 and 14. Please turn there because this is a very important passage for us to grapple with because um, it is a passage that reminds us of many things that we need to be reminded of every single day. In James four thirteen, he says, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend the year there and trade and make a profit. Now I want to be clear, he is not saying it is not right to plan. I'm going to be clear on that. James is not saying you should never plan. What he's saying is when you're planning, here's what you need to remember. And what do you need to remember? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here's what you should say, though. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and such boasting is evil. He's basically, what he's saying is, you do not know what tomorrow holds, but who does? God does. And so if God wills, this will happen. If God does not will it to happen, guess what? This won't happen. But here's what happens when we start talking like this. Because we like the fact that everything is from god but if there's a time where all of a sudden when things are being accomplished we want to go well what about me because if we're not careful we have to wrestle with this so does it even matter what i do if everything is from god and through god and to god am i just a puppet on a string what about my will what about the decisions i make And when you say that too long, I want to be careful. This is where we need to pause because we can start saying, but what about me? And if your initial response to the sovereignty of God is to respond, but what about me? I would argue, and I'm arguing this because I do this all the time as well. So I'll just pick on myself. When immediately I'm confronted with the sovereignty of God and immediately say, but what about me? Literally what I am hearing in my own voice is I'm a pretty big deal around here. Because God's really big, but what am I still? I'm a pretty, pretty good guy, right? You know, like, what about me? Well, I mean, I've got something. So when we deal with this will of man and God's sovereign decreed plan, we need to start at the beginning. We start with God and we work our way back to man. We do not start with man and work our way to God. We start with what the Bible says about God. But I want to help you. As we read through and we think through this whole idea that how is everything from God to God and all about God, to Him be the glory, what about me? It's very interesting, the Bible does not struggle to proclaim these two things. Here's what the Bible does not struggle proclaiming, that God is sovereign over the affairs of man, and there's not a single thing that happens that God has not decreed. You know what also doesn't have a problem proclaiming? That man's decisions have real decisions and they have eternal consequences. And I'll give you a passage where these collide. But there's a lot of times in our own lives we all get ourselves in this Gordian knot tied about this. And I'll explain why we do. But go to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we are left with a beautiful, beautiful understanding of of how we are to approach a topic like this. Now, what we have in Acts chapter 2 is Peter, who was filled by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. Remember, all of the disciples that were in the that were in the building were filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in the languages of people around them, proclaiming the glory of God. And all of a sudden, people say, hey, these people are drunk. What's going on here? And Peter, who was scared to death Peter, remember him? Stands up and gives a sermon, and he's describing what's happening. Now, in his sermon, he's going to do a lot of just I mean, they're not even little like pot shots. They're like cannonballs at the people that are standing here. And here's one of them in verse 22, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up accordingly to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So here's what he's saying. Is Jesus, how was he delivered up? By a decree of God, the decree was gone out that Jesus is going to be crucified, but who did it? You did it. So what we have is a sovereign decree of God being played out in time and space by people that have real lasting consequences to the decisions that they're making. And Peter's not sitting here going, let me try to explain how this all fits together beautifully so you get it. What he is saying is, here is what is decreed, here is what has happened, and our response to all of this is to repent and believe. He doesn't say, let's go through some long diatribe about man's will and the sovereignty of God and get ourselves so tied up that we sit there and not do what the call of the gospel is. What is the call of gospel? Believe and repent. But you might say, but Tim, all right, I I get that part, but you don't understand. I got up yesterday and I went out to work and I worked really, really, really hard and I worked really, really hard and I brought home the money for my family last time i checked if i let god do it the tools would just sit there i did it i'm the one who should be thanked Again, you know you thank god but no like i literally was the one that pounded the nail i was the one who mowed the, the yard i was the one that brought in the crops not god why should i thank him because remember what do we all believe the verse that's not in the bible god helps what those who help themselves, right? We all know that's not there, but what do we all live like? It's there, right? 1 Corinthians 4.7. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4.7. And in 1 Corinthians 4.7, here's what we read. starting about in the middle of the verse there, but just because it just hits us right between the eyes. What do you have that you did not receive? Another phenomenal rhetorical question, and the answer is nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. But you don't understand, Tim. I went out and did it. Or where'd that energy come from? Where'd the life and breath come from? And the answer is who? God. God. What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's literally saying here, everything you have is literally from Him. And what is it to? It is through Him that you're doing it because it is to Him. Now here's what happens. We live in the era that has been so impacted by the Enlightenment era. And that era is so powerfully impacting us to this day. And that era is this, that you are the center, that man is the center of all things. Because at one time we used to have to pray about weather. Now what, we can, what can we do? We can predict it, right? At one time we used to get sick and then you would pray. Now what do we do? Run to the doctor. And the doctor's supposed to fix everything, right? All of a sudden a disease comes through and what are we all clamoring for? Give me the shot so I don't die. What are we forgetting? It's appointed it unto man, what? Wants to die, all right? And we run to man, right? And all of a sudden man now, we think we can understand all things. If you don't know something, what do you do? You take a noun and make it a verb. You Google it, right? And we're gonna find out all the information. I mean, it was amazing to me. We're sitting there and how lazy even thinkers we've come because we've just trusted in ourselves. We're trying to figure out how to run a weird coffee pot. The other morning, Glenn and I at RBC are sitting there trying to figure this out and we're, we're trying to use our own brains. And do you know how much information we got from people? Here's what they said. Why don't you what? Google it. Don't use your brain. Let somebody else use it for you, right? And we're just going to do this because that's what we do. Man, we think, controls all things. And then that great, I would also call horrible poem, I am the captain of my own soul, right? That everybody quotes at graduations and you're like, can you just build the Tower of Babel right there? You know, like, I'm the captain of my own soul. And you want to go, yeah, right. Have you, have you not read, right? We love that, right? But what the Enlightenment done has so confused us that what we should be doing is pausing at, and feeding at the, and feasting upon God and reflecting anew and reminding ourselves that through Him and to Him are all things. And as we do that, what starts to bubble up in our souls is not praise to ourselves, it is praise to God and God alone. Sola Deo Gloria. Revelation 21, 1-6 through 6. It's a passage of Scripture that I want to make sure we understand, and we understand completely because we get a gaze at to look into the heavens. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, we get a a taste of what glory will be like. Here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bridegroom, adorned for their husband. Another way of saying that, beautiful. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things by God's grace have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, what does he say? For you whose parents are dying, for you whose bodies are falling apart, what does he say? I make a couple things new. All things are made new. And he said, write this down. For these words are what? Trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Why? What what is the argument of why it is done? Because Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, because all things are from him and through him and what? To Him, and then all of us who are so thirsting for pure pleasure that will never cease, what does He say? To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of water life without payment. And we all say when we read that, why have you not come quickly, Lord? Come now, Lord Jesus, right? And we long for that day, right? We long for Him to make all things new. And so from that theology of Romans 11, go back to Romans 11. Back to the theology that through Him and to Him are all things. We get to the second part, to Him be the glory. Proper theology produces proper praise. Paul's argument, again, is that because God is the source, because God is the sustainer, and because God is the completer of all things, God then and God alone is the one that received glory and praise. Notice the phrase, to Him be glory forever." I keep throwing another ever in there. But to Him be glory forever. So who is to be glorified? What does the text say? Him. Who is the Him that is God alone? This is where we get the phrase from the Reformers, Dea the Gloria. They would remind us that His glory is not a shared glory. We do not share in God's glory. We do not sing a duet with God about our own praises. And the question is then, to Him be glory. This is the idea that belongs to Him. And how long does it belong to Him? The text tells us for what? Forever. I know you just all added another ever, but there's only one ever in there. Forever. Alright? Eternal, lasting glory. And then what does Paul put on the end? Amen. It is true. Yes, may it be so. So the question in front of us then, how does one then live to the glory of God alone? Because the life of a believer... As we look at this, point number three, what does it look like to live day of glory? The life of a follower of God is a life that is passionate about proclaiming the glory of God. To God be the glory a Christian lives. But when we praise God, we are not giving Him glory as if He lacked glory. You following how this goes? It is not that God is up there, that He lacks glory, and that we're giving Him glory. What we are doing is ascribing to God the glory already that He is, and what is due His name. No different than when I stand at the Grand Canyon. Well, it's a whole lot different, but it's an earthly example. When I stand at the Grand Canyon and I look at the Grand Canyon and I say, that is grand. All right, all I'm doing is proclaiming what it already is. I'm standing in all of it. By people standing there and going, wow, that is great. And it does not make it any greater than it already is. When we proclaim the glory of God and we talk about how great He is, God is not getting added glory. What He is getting is the glory that is due Him. What is necessary for an individual when they understand how great God is, this is just a natural response to glorify His name. So now I want to go back a little bit. I want to spend some time here real quick talking about why was this one of the five solas of the Reformation? Like, what was going on that they had to say? And by the way, everybody, like, God gets the glory alone. All right, so here's what happens, and we are in danger of this happening many different times as well. So, remember what we talked about was when we talked about Christ alone, how the Catholic Church believed that they were part of literally the body of Christ, and so They were Jesus on earth, and so Jesus was prophet, priest, and king, and so from that came the whole Catholic hierarchy of popes and cardinals and bishops and all these other things. Well, there was another group in the Catholic church that were friars, and what friars were, these were people that said that they were dedicating their life to the ministry, and so they would go around, and they would teach people things, and when they came into town, because they were part of the Catholic church, they would just knock on anybody's door that they wanted to, and they'd knock and go, hi, I'm here, I'm friar such and such. And they would expect you to give them meals and room and board and even pay them as they just went around. But supposedly they took a vow of poverty. But many of the friars were richer than anybody else in town because everybody had to give to them in order to keep their salvation. And before you know it, you started giving to all of the other bishops and all the other leaders. And so you had the people that were really doing something that mattered and then you had everybody else. So you had, unless you were given your life to the service of God, everybody else was subpar, and you almost had two tiers of people. You had the church people, and then all of you common people down here. And so, all of a sudden, there was only one vocation that mattered. And what was the vocation that mattered? The church. Everybody else didn't matter at all. And all of a sudden... The Bible is rediscovered and written in language and they come across First 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And all of a sudden the average guy sitting there goes, I thought the only people that could glorify God were the preachers and the church people. Now all of a sudden this is telling me I can glorify God where? Whatever I'm doing. And this was a revolutionary thing that went all throughout nations that actually understood the Reformation. Where you go to where the Reformation was, all of a sudden the work ethic picked up big time because people were not working for their bosses anymore when they understood this. Who were they working for? God. And they realized that their work is praise to God. But here's what happens in our day and age. If we're not careful... We pick up books that were written in the early 2000s, things like, you need to do radical things for the cause of Christ. So all of a sudden, everybody starts saying, if you're not in ministry, you're not much, right? Like if you're Dutch, you know, like you're not much unless you're Dutch type of deal. Literally, we take the same thing where unless you're in the church service, only that stuff matters, everybody else doesn't really matter. And before you know it, we have tears again. As if like Pastor Tim is doing the work that really matters, what are you guys doing? Wasting your time so you can pay him to do the work that really matters. And I'm going to argue, I'm not telling you that, all right? I'm just going, this is what can happen, can it? As if like what God has called me to do is somehow on a higher plane or better than all the rest of you, that I can only bring glory to God and not you. And so here's how it comes in. The mundane becomes what? Mundane, instead of the mundane being a spot where we can glorify and honor God. So if we're not careful, we start teaching only if you're doing radical things for Christ. That's all that matters. And all of a sudden, I've had a litany of, let's just cut to the chase here. I've had ladies come talk to Allison and I, and they go, you know what I did today? I wiped noses. I changed diapers. I didn't have any conversations with anyone older than two. And I feel like all I do is pick up toys just for them to go out again and I make dinners that no one says thank you to and guess what I'm going to do tomorrow the same thing will I do anything that has eternal value and what do we tell people like that how about do all to the glory of God can you do that to the glory of God the answer is yes And so when you start thinking this way, wait a minute, all of a sudden, you you look right past your boss. I don't care who your boss is. You have a boss, which is what? God and God alone. And all of a sudden now, when you're working, you're working to the glory and honor of God wherever He has called you to. But what happens is if we don't grapple with this, the mundane becomes somehow not important and we start to think it doesn't really matter how I work and how I live, because your work, what Sola Dea Gloria says is to be done to the glory and honor of God, no matter how minuscule you think it is, because everything you do is the point to Him. So let's play this out even more. You're in your job on Monday, and you're sitting here and going, I know I should be doing this, or I should be doing that. I can waste a little time here or I can waste a little time there. What does Solidea Gloria say? You're working for the glory and honor of God even if no one sees. Do I need to put three nails in this? Well, three will hold, but literally four is what I should do. What do we do? All right, Uh, here's another one. I know I need to, uh, I only brought three nails up with me. I'll nail this board in and it'll be okay. But what am I getting paid to do? Get off your stinking ladder, go down, and you can say, glory to God that I left it down there, I'm going right back up, and I'm going to do it right for the glory and honor of God. One of the cool things that as the reformers started to go through this, there are stained glass windows in churches that they would call them sola Dea gloria windows, the glory of God alone because no one's going to see them. They were tucked so far away that they were for God's glory and God's glory alone, and guess what they did? They worked just as hard on those as anybody else. When Sola Dea Gloria came flying through Europe, um, in the uh, Switzerland world, it just totally revolutionized the Swiss. Um, If you had a little cool history thing is when um, in Geneva there in Switzerland, where these five Solas really took root, you will start to see the work ethic of that country literally flipped on its head. Because people started realizing that when I'm sitting in my tractor and driving, I'm driving to the glory and honor of God. So I'm going to do my best, not because someone else is there, but to the glory and honor of God. So that would mean that even if you have the most corrupt, evil people around you, what do Christians do? They realize that that person has been put there from God. And what do we do? We glorify God by doing what he's called us to do to the best of our ability. So he gets the glory and he gets the praise and all of a sudden those most mundane things that you think don't matter, actually now what? They matter because God is the one who gets glory. So the question then is, how do we glorify God? Simple put, it was a little catechism that I taught my kids when they were little. How do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Our hearts are for him and when he tells us, we do what he has called us to do. And what does he call us to do? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, real quick here, I wouldn't be amiss to to just give you, I came across this phenomenal article that puts it in such a great way. What are the challenges to glorifying God? What are the two sides of the road that we can fall off on? Um, This comes from an article written by John Piper where he says, Again, to display the glory of God is to display the supreme worth and beauty of God. As, as our lives are to, explain, or to display the supreme worth and beauty of God. And he says there are two challenges that Satan likes to use to destroy this. And the two challenges that he likes to bring in our lives is one that is pain and the other is pleasure. The, the two sides of the roads we can fall off in is the pain and pleasure side to giving God glory. Because what does pain do? Pain causes us to value something else more than God by making us angry that God has planned this for us. And what it does is it makes us want to be done with it. And the more we want to be done with it, we are no longer embracing God. What are we doing? Focus all in our pain and agony. We like just stop, stop, stop. Instead of running to Him, we run to just whatever can fix this. Okay, the other side is pleasure. Where we spend so much time in pleasure, that we're cherishing our pleasure more than we cherish God. And it's not by making us angry at God, but what does pleasure do? Forget that we even are understanding that everything is from Him and to Him and for Him. Pleasure drives us to a point where, well, we don't even need God, right? We're just whistling through our day. Everything is great and we don't need God. And he, John Piper was arguing there's two sides we can fall off on of this. Pain or pleasure that we miss that God has put these things into our lives. To God be the glory. This is at the heart and the root of all of us because here's what we want to do. And here's where it creeps in. So you said, Tim, all, even the mundane things, we can bring glory to God. But guess what can creep in really quick? When we're doing the mundane things to His glory, we hope that someone's watching, so they say what? Way to go on the mundane things, right? Good job, you did the small, insignificant things right. What a wonderful person you are. And before you know it, I have had this happen multiple times in my life. I have listened to sermons. I'm literally blowing off an area of, of, the, um, of, a, of a driveway or something else like this, and I come around and I look, and one of the rules that we had when we were landscaping was you blow off the person's porch, whether they paid you or not. That was just an extra we would have. The person's not home. It's fall. Guess what happens during fall? Leaves. Whatever I blow off will not look like we did anything two minutes later, right? Right? We're not getting paid to do this, but my boss had asked me to do it. And I'm literally listening to this, right? I'm literally listening to sermon about doing the mundane things to the glory of God, so I blow off the porch. And guess what I want to tell him when I'm sitting down in there. Hey, by the way, I did something that we, because I want him to go, Good job, Tim, way to do that. You you feel the fight, at least in my own heart. I'm sure it doesn't happen to any of you guys. But the fight in our own heart, That what do we want? We want the praise of man. Instead of saying, if it's glory to God and glory to God alone, we do those things knowing that we may never get the glory for that. No one may ever see that. But what are we going to do? We're going to do it well because we want people, when they see us, to see Christ. Because it's all about Him. To Him be glory forever and ever. And so here's my prayer for us. We say, what did we learn? To God be the glory, great things He has done. And we are to call and appoint others to Him and Him alone. Because He is the only one that is worthy of all of our glory and praise. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank You. Thank You for these reminders from Your Word. As Paul was ending this part of Romans here, and he reminded us that You are the one, you are the architect, you are the administrator, and you are the completer of all things, and may we rest in that fact. And yet at the same time, may we understand that you have called us to act, to live, to respond to this message in praise and may our life be one of praise back to you one that points others to you one that does those small even insignificantly mundane things to the glory and honor of god because you are the one that we want people to see help us now guide us we're about ready to sing a song about how majestic you are may these words not be something we sing but they may be something we also live in your name we pray amen